I hope as we sang that last song, song number 752, When My Love to Christ Grows Weak, that those were not just words that you were singing because you had sung them maybe so many times, but I hope that you really were thinking about the words. I have a question for you as we begin this morning, several questions actually. Don't need you to respond out loud, but carrying forward the thoughts of that song, I want you to... At least in your own minds, consider these questions and answer them. Why do we come to worship here each Sunday? Really? Why do we get up, get dressed up, come to church, travel in every time the doors are open? Why, why do we do that? Why do we seek to live our lives in such a way that sometimes those who don't know the Lord look at us as if we're just freaks or people that are self-righteous or never have any fun? Why, why do we live our lives in such a fashion that makes some people say that? Why do we sometimes have arguments, even fights with friends and families? And why do we defend the truth of the gospel despite the cost or consequences that we sometimes face within our families? These are some of the questions that I want us to discuss this morning. I want us to think about. And I'm going to share with you some comments during this sermon from a book entitled Stronger Than Ever that was written by Jason Jackson. And I'm going to ask, and I know that we often say this on Sunday mornings, but I'm going to ask that you really leave the cares of the world behind and really focus on this lesson and its contents this morning because if you really focus on the contents of this morning's sermon, it can change not only today but the rest of your life. Please take out your Bibles this morning and turn to the epistle to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3, the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the first century church of Christ that worked and worshipped there in Ephesus. I want you to understand this morning that my prayer for us is that we don't just get locked in this rut of seeing this as just another Sunday, that we, don't, that we don't just take it for granted, but we really, really, really immerse ourselves in this lesson and the things that we are about to talk about. My prayer for us this morning is the same as the Apostle Paul's was for the members of the Ephesian Church of Christ. In Ephesians 3, verse 14, he says... For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, and I want him to grant you this this morning, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, 
Paul says, my, my prayer for you is, is that you can get your mind around that which, which is impossible to get your mind around. He said, I just want you to understand this incredible, limitless love that Christ has for you. Verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You want to be filled with the fullness of God? Listen carefully this morning. Immerse yourself in this lesson. Because if you do, you'll get far more out of it than you ever put into it. On pages 55 and 56 of this book, Stronger Than Ever, we find the following. Under the heading, The Love of Christ. Get this in your mind. The road ascends from the brook, bearing to the right while another cuts to the left. A direct route to the summit of one of the world's most famous mountains. But Olivet's grandeur comes neither from form nor elevation. The Mount of Olives, in other words, it's, it's fame does not come from, you know, it's not like the Rockies or Mount St. Helens or anything like that. Instead, its fame comes from something else. At this fork in the road, behind the enclosure, is the traditional site of Gethsemane. Maybe some of you have actually been to Israel and seen this. Having visited this site, J.W. McGarvey once said, There is, of course, no certainty that this particular garden occupies the identical spot of the real Gethsemane, but it cannot be very far from the real spot. And its venerable olives, the like of which are not elsewhere seen in the vicinity of Jerusalem, render it more suggestive of the ancient associations than any other adjacent spot. We may never know the exact location where Jesus Christ knelt in the garden. What is certain, however, is that we must go there. Go to the redemptive events for which Gethsemane is known, that is. Amid the shades, ponder the familiar scene, word by word. Christ's love, His benevolent goodwill, will bring us to our knees, if in deep thought we go to Gethsemane. Brother Jackson continues, as we appreciate the depth of Christ's suffering, we learn about His divine love. Love means Salvation. Salvation meant suffering. Thus, his suffering will teach us significantly about his love. Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Mark, the 14th chapter, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. While I typically preach out of a New King James and will be for a lot of this morning, I'm going to also occasionally use the wording from the American Standard Version. <clears throat> but if we look in Mark chapter 14 as we go in our minds to Gethsemane and we look at verse 32, it says in the New King James Version, And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. 
The American Standard Version says, And they come unto a place which was called Gethsemane, and he saith unto his disciples, Sit ye here while I pray. They come, in the original, is a present tense verb. Daniel Wallace explains the reason for the use of the historical present is normally to portray an event vividly as though the reader were in the midst of the scene as it unfolds. As, as people tell of events past, in order to make it more real sometimes, they will use a present tense like you're, you're there. And this morning, I, I want for you and your minds to go to Gethsemane. I want you to think about what happened there. According to verse 33, it says that Jesus became troubled and deeply distressed. It says he began to be troubled. The word began, I want us to look at that word, he began to be. You know, Gethsemane, there were olives there as we've already talked about, hence the Mount of Olives, but... The word Gethsemane, you might not have known, means olive press. And what they would do with these olives that they harvested is that they would press them for the olive oil that they contained. Don't miss the imagery here. Jesus began to be compressed by unimaginable sorrow like, like it was about to be squeezed out of him. He began to be like an olive press crushing he began to be troubled. You know, the American Standard Version says he began to be sore troubled. It comes from a Greek word which I won't even try to pronounce, but it means not just distress, it means great distress. It means a crushing anguish. Jesus began to be troubled and deeply distressed. That Greek word there that's translated deeply distressed, this is what it means. This is the literal meaning of the word. It means to throw into terror. Now, I'm not being irreverent here. That's what the word means. To be thrown into terror or amazement. To alarm thoroughly. To terrify. To be struck with amazement. To be thoroughly astounded. To be struck with terror. Now, when you stop and think about Jesus Christ, you stop and think about the fact He was God in the flesh. He was the Word made flesh, came to dwell among us. John 1 and verse 14. When you think about that, we don't often think about Jesus being deeply distressed in the sense of alarmed, amazed, astounded terrified. We, we don't think in those terms. He's God. What could possibly terrify God? I mean, really, come on, get real. But yet, that's what the Greek word means. And before we get done with this lesson this morning, you'll understand more about why. The scripture is showing us in Mark 14, verse 33, that Jesus is beginning to be compressed, thrown into terror and astonishment, greatly distressed. And anguished. In fact, he says pretty much that very thing in the very next verse. Look at verse 34. He said to them, My soul. He didn't just say, Hey, this hurts. Um, I'm in pain here. I'm really trying to. That, that's not what he said. He went much deeper. He said, You can't get any deeper than your soul. He said, My soul. 
is exceedingly, it's not just troubled, it's not just strikes the core of my being, my soul, he says, is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Think about that. That word there for exceedingly sorrowful is paralipos. And the first part of it is, is the word peril, P-E-R-I-L, then a Y and a P and an O and an S in the Greek. And it means an overwhelming sorrow. One writer suggests it means a sorrow so deep it almost kills you. You know, sometimes we have pain, we have sorrow, we have troubles. We say it breaks our heart, right? Jesus goes way beyond that. Jesus goes so far beyond that that having our heart broken seems like a day in the park. Jesus said, my soul, it, it, it's almost killing me. It is, there's so much sorrow. Verse 35 says, he went a little farther. He fell on the ground. He prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Luke's Gospel tells us in Luke 22 and verse 41, he went a stone's throw beyond. That's how much farther he went. And he fell to the ground. Probably beneath the weight, the crushing, brutal weight of what was about to occur. And he, and he poured himself out in prayer to God. And we see this here in verse 36. He said, Abba, Father... Abba is a, is a Greek term for like daddy, like a little child will call their father daddy. And when they're alarmed or hurt, when something has scared them to death, when they've had a nightmare, it's that daddy, daddy. And, and Jesus here cries out. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. The weight of that began to crush him. And he says, Father, please. Yet... Or nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Luke shares something that the other gospel writers do not at this point in his account. Please turn to me to Luke 22. Luke 22 and verse 41. As I've said so many times, if you have four different people write an account of the same event. Some are going to put in details that others do not. Luke gives us some details that Matthew, Mark, and John do not. Luke 22 and verse 41. He was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And it's the part that Luke puts in that nobody else does. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. Strengthen. An angel from heaven is there. And I, I don't know what took place, and the Bible doesn't tell us, but to me, at the very least, it would seem as the angel was a reminder, hey, you're coming home, just a few short hours, and you're going to be back in heaven, back in the presence of the divine glory, and, and I'm here to remind you of all that's waiting for you. D don't, don't, don't surrender because of the terror of what you're about to go through. This is it. Not that Jesus would, because Jesus wouldn't, but, but God in His goodness sends this angel to appear to Him, strengthening Him. And then, 
And then it's after that reminder from heaven. It's after that strengthening that's supposed to take place. It's then that Jesus sweats like great drops of blood. You'd think it'd be the other way around. You'd think he'd go through that struggle before the angel and then the angel kind of strengthens him and picks him up. But even with the angel's encouragement, he sweats. Look at this. His... his, his Sweat is like great drops of blood. Verse 44, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Don't think that just because Jesus was God, he wasn't struggling. We get this picture of Jesus in our mind. Well, it was no problem for him. You know, he was God in the flesh. He was also a man. And Jesus is struggling with this. He's sorrowful to the depths of his soul. The angel comes down and even with the angel's encouragement, he's, he's praying earnestly and his sweat is like great drops of blood and he's in this intense agony. And he's wrestling with this. Don't miss that. James Edwards once said, Nothing in all of the Bible compares to Jesus' agony and anguish in Gethsemane. I want you to stop and think about some of the awful things that happened in the Bible. It says there... Uh, our brother Edwards continues, uh, James Edwards continues, he says, Neither the laments of the Psalms, nor the broken heart of Abraham as he prepared to sacrifice his son Isaac, nor David's grief at the death of his son Absalom, absolutely nothing else in the Bible or in human history compares to the agony Jesus was feeling. Don't, don't miss that. And as you consider the agony of Christ, I want to observe four biblical truths. The presence of Satan, the propitiation for our sins, the purpose of God, and the priesthood of Christ. Number one, don't miss the presence of Satan. Satan was in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3 and verse 15. The very first prophecy took place there. God the creator, man the creature, Satan the tempter, and Christ the savior were all in that original arena of conflict. Don't miss the presence of Satan seen many times. Jesus knew the devil's role in the fall of man, John 8 and verse 44. The, that evil presence was felt that night in the events of Gethsemane. You don't think the devil was tempting him that night in Gethsemane not to go through with this? We talk about Jesus' temptations in Matthew 4 and the three temptations. You don't think Satan was right there doing everything in his power to try to convince you this isn't worth it. They're not worth it. You don't have to do this. He's already told him in Matthew chapter 4, look, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll just bow down and worship me. He's tried and he's tried and he's tried. For those of you that have seen the movie The Passion, you know, it's you see that depiction of, of Satan there in the garden and, and Jesus pouring himself out in prayer. Don't neglect the presence of Satan. Christ said the hour had come that would result in the prince of the world's being cast out. John 12 and verse 31. Jesus knew that Judas, by yielding to temptation, had Satan in his heart. John 13 and verse 2. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, 30, the ruler of this world is coming. He had no power over Jesus. Jesus said on his way to Gethsemane, the ruler of this world is judged, John 16 and verse 11. Jesus characterized his arrest as being delivered into the hands of sinners, Mark 14 and verse 41. They didn't take Jesus' life. Jesus willingly let them have it, John 10 verse 17. 
He even described this time as their hour in the power of darkness in Luke 22 and verse 53. Why? 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 Why would God allow His Son, why would Jesus do that? The answer is in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who were through fear of death, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You don't have to look in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 to find the answers to why Jesus went through this. You see the answer every morning when you look in the mirror. Why? That's why. I want you to think about this absolute perfection. Jesus Christ allowing himself to be put under the power of the prince of darkness for even a moment. The unimaginable agony that that must have been that contribute to the thought of being in sinner's hands under the sway of Satan for even an instant. That's God in the flesh. He's never been, even, even in any way, shape, or form, he's never allowed himself to, to experience being under that power of death or those things. And, and yet here he is. Number two, I want you to think about the propitiation for sin. We know Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But there's more to that text. It goes on in verses 24 and 5 to say, Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood. I want us to think about the propitiation by His blood the propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation is a big word. What does that mean? This is the meat of this morning's lesson. If you don't get anything else out of this lesson, take this with you. Okay? This is what propitiation means. As our sin bearer, Jesus Christ would suffer the full penalty for all of our sins and for the sins of all mankind all at once. All at once. In an all-out assault on sin by the full-blown wrath of Almighty God for each and every sin ever committed from the Garden of Eden right up till now. Now, now get, try, try, try to get your mind around that. He was going to have to endure a consequence that satisfied the justice of God. One that would serve as the absolute penalty for every single sin ever committed. Folks, there's been a lot of sins committed since the foundation of the world. And from Adam and Eve until right this second... Jesus had to take the full-blown wrath for every one of them from God. 
I just can't. And he knew it. Do you, do you begin to see why his soul was deeply troubled? Do you begin to see why he was in distress? Do you begin to see why the word includes thoughts like terror? How many sins, and we've talked about this many times, how many sins take Adam and Eve to get out of the garden? Just one. How many sins it take for Moses not to enter the promised land? Just one. How many sins will it take to keep a person out of heaven? Just one. You know, when you think about that, the cost of one sin in God's eyes, the cost of one sin is eternity. We can't even think in those terms. Cost of one sin is eternity in hell. Right? We know this, right? Okay. And so we can't pay for one of our sins. Now you take all the sins you've committed in your individual lifetime. Then you multiply that by everybody on the planet and everybody that's ever been on the planet. The thought of hell overwhelms us for just our own sins in one lifetime. What if one had to face the equivalent of eternity in hell for every single sin of every single sinner since the beginning of time all at once? That's what Jesus did. That's why he said that night, my, my soul is troubled to death. We've got to understand that's exactly what he did. Look in Hebrews 2 and verse 9. Hebrews 2 and verse 9. We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. You know, everybody thinks grace is a wonderful thing and grace is. It is the most incredible thing that ever was. But what I want for us to understand is this. For Jesus to have to go through that, that was God's grace. You say, well, how is that even possible? All that suffering, God's grace. Because in order for you to get grace, that's what he had to go through. He had to pay for your sins and my sins. He had to pay the full equivalent of eternity in hell for each and every sin you and I and everybody else that's ever been created has committed, all in one, one full blast from God. When it says there that he tasted death for everyone, it means in the place of everyone. Look in 2 Corinthians 5.21 at the cost. What an incredible cost. It was read to us in the scripture reading, but look in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Jesus didn't just take our sins on him. It's not what the text says. Jesus became sin. He who knew none. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jack Cottrell said, If Christ actually took our place in bearing the wrath of God, and he did, this means that he bore the full force of God's wrath. He suffered the equivalent of eternity in hell for every sinner. Again, do we begin to see why he was so troubled? 
Cottrell continues, we must keep in mind that both the physical and the spiritual suffering of Christ was experienced by one who was by nature divine and thus infinite himself. Thus, even though he suffered for only a finite period of time, we say it was only three days, he suffered this finite period of time, the suffering itself was infinite because Christ is an infinite being. It cannot be quantified. How can the suffering Christ, which lasted only a few hours, be the equivalent of eternity in hell for the whole human race? Here's how. Because he was God. The finite, listen to this, the finite suffering of an infinite being would seem to be the equivalent to the infinite suffering of finite beings. I thought that was very well said. This is one of the main reasons why atonement could be accomplished only by God himself and not by any creature, man, or angel. Folks, there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12, Jesus Christ is Lord, period. As the Lord saw the absolute and overwhelming wrath of God about to be unleashed on him full force for every sin that was ever committed from the beginning of time, is it any wonder he prayed, Father, if there's some other way. Thirdly, we see the purpose of God. Jesus so loved the Father that he yielded to his will. To his will. Father, if there's any other way, yet not my will, but yours be done. Even though that yielding was going to require the unimaginable, the unthinkable, the unspeakable. God so loved you. Person you look at in the mirror every morning. And God so loved me. God so loved the entire world. That he gave his only begotten son... To face the full blast of his fury for everything we've talked about. And he did it on purpose. And he knew from the beginning of time he was going to do it. In Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, we see this. As Peter stood up and preached the first gospel sermon after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 2, look how he begins his sermon. Acts 2, beginning at verse 22. Men of Israel, Peter says, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless men, have crucified and put to death whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it should not be possible that he would be held by it. God knew what he was doing. Listen to me. God gave His Son, John 3.16. God sent His Son, John 6 and verse 38. God delivered up His Son knowing that that's exactly what He was going to do and exactly what Jesus was going to have to go through. Acts 2, 22-24 as we have just read. God smote His Son, Mark 14 and verse 27. And God made him to be sin on our behalf. He bruised him, put him to grief, and made him an offering for sin. All in Isaiah 53. And he perfected him through suffering. Hebrews 2.10. That was God's purpose. All through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament, that was God's purpose. 
Turn with me to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. 700 years before the New Testament was written, before the New Testament times happened as it were, God says, let me tell you what I'm going to do to my son. Let me tell you how much I love you. Let me show you how much Jesus loves you. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. By the way, you could read Proverbs 22 for some exact quotes at home this afternoon. But Isaiah 53, beginning at verse 1, says, Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness... When we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus didn't look any different than anybody else. He is despised and rejected by men. This was God's plan all along. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. We looked on Him and said, look what God's done to Him. But the point is, is yes, God was doing it to Him, but why was God doing it to Him? Because He's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. Jesus Christ was not wounded because he'd done something wrong. He never did anything wrong. He never sinned. Jesus was wounded. He was scourged and had the flesh ripped off his back. He was crucified and had nails driven through his flesh for your sin and mine. He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised. That crown of thorns was placed on his head and they beat that into his head. For who? He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. You see, there's no other way to have peace with God except through Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 1 and 2. That's why it happened. And by His stripes we are healed. That's scourging again. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. There it is. That's the reason Jesus went through it. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so He opened not His mouth. Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus Christ ever lose an argument? No, He's God in the flesh. He's God's wisdom. He never lost an argument. Could He have argued His way out of the cross? Before the men, before the council. Of course he could have. So what did he do? Well, he knew if he opened his mouth, he could outdo him. So what did he do? Shut up and let them do what they had to do. You ever been in an argument with somebody you knew you could just nuke them out of the planet? You know, you just knew you could win this argument. You knew they were wrong. You knew you could win. All you had to do was open your mouth. It's a real temptation to do that, isn't it? Must have been some temptation that night they were standing there and they were throwing accusations at him and he's never lost an argument and he's just standing there and they're throwing these accusations and he knows he's got the power to just go boom, right? Just stands there. He knows what's coming. He knows all things that are going to happen to him. John 18 and verse 4. So why did he keep his mouth shut? I'm telling you why he kept his mouth shut. He kept his mouth shut because you needed a savior. 
He kept his mouth shut because you'd be spending eternity in hell without a perfect sacrifice. That's why he kept his mouth shut. He was taken, verse 8, from prison and from judgment. Who will declare his generation? He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. How many times is Isaiah going to say, hey, the reason he went through this was for you. They made his grave with the wicked and the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Jesus never sinned. Verse 10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. God was pleased and happy to do this to Jesus, for Jesus to take the full-blown wrath for every sin of all mankind, each sin deserving eternity in hell, and for Jesus to take the full-blown concentration of the wrath of God. And God was happy to do that to His Son. It pleased the Lord. Why? Because you needed a Savior. Because you're that special to God. He's put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. And he'll see his seed, he'll prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. When Jesus looks back later on after he's been resurrected, and he's up there interceding at the right hand of the throne of God for us in Hebrews, I believe it's chapter 7 and verse 25, where he's interceding for us, it says, when he gets through this, he's going to be pleased. You know why he's going to be pleased? Because he's going to know that those he loves so much now can come to heaven and spend eternity with him. He's going to be happy about this when it's over. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. He'll divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered to the transgressors, bore the sin of many, and made intercession. The transgressors. There's that soul again. Finally, this morning we come to the priesthood of Christ. Jesus became the perfect high priest because he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2. Even though that would entail not only leaving the glories of heaven behind, but also coming face to face with the infinite wrath of Almighty God for every sin ever. Consider with me Hebrews 5. Would you please turn there? Hebrews 5, verses 5 through 9, as we talk about the priesthood of Christ. Let's get a picture of that divine love from God as we consider what was going on in Gethsemane. Hebrews 5, we'll actually start at verse 7, talking about Jesus. In the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, he was heard because of his godly fear. Your version may say reverent submission. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. That doesn't mean that Jesus had to be taught how to obey. Jesus always obeyed. Jesus never sinned. What that means is he learned obedience. He learned the cost of obedience. He learned what obedience takes. Obedience sometimes puts you through a lot of pain. He learned obedience. He learned the experience. By the things which he suffered and having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. You know why? Because he was terrified. 
the anticipation of God's full-blown wrath for every sin. The separation that for the only time in all eternity, the only time he would ever be separated from his father because sin demanded it. Being at the mercy of evil incarnate, having to go through death and having to go through Hades and go through those things, that's what made Jesus get down on the ground in his sweat like great drops of blood. Father, if there's any other way... Brother Jackson says, death was not merely the ceasing of biological life to Jesus. He perceived its spiritual significance as a consequence of sin. The death and separation experience as a sin burden was torturous. It was not the fear of death to which mankind had been in bondage that the Lord dreaded. In spite of his anguish, he chose to suffer for us because of his love for our souls. He entered the furnace of suffering as only a divine person in the flesh could. In spite of the sorrowful alienation from the Father, he willingly submitted to suffering inconceivable agonies. Listen, what he's talking about, if I can just simplify it down, is this. You know, we often think about Jesus going through, the, the, you know, having the spikes put through him here and the scourging and the crown of thorns and the ripping flesh and all of that. Listen. There are people in the first century, martyrs, who went through all of those things, and they went through them with pretty good spirits. It's said, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's said that the Apostle Paul went to, the, went to die with a smile on his face. A lot of these first century martyrs, they went through some terrible stuff, but the physical stuff that they went through, they faced it, and they died, and they were burned at the stake, and thrown to the lions, and all of those things. Jesus' suffering was much more than physical he suffered as God. God don't, don't go through these things. God doesn't go through what, what he went through, and, and yet he did. The suffering was on a, a spiritual level, an eternal level. He indicated to the disciples earlier that he was ready. John 12, 27 and 8. He said, Now my soul is troubled, and what will I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Albert Barnes said this, There is no need of supposing there was a single thing that produced it, but it's probable this was a rush from every quarter. His situation, his approaching death, the temptation of the enemy, and the awful suffering on account of men's sins, and God's hatred of it, about to be manifested in his own death, all coming in on Jesus at the same time, this concentration of sufferings, this unspeakable anguish. We can't get our mind around it. But he went through all of that. Because of you. And me. Every bit of it. Because he wants to be our high priest. Because he wants to comfort us in our affliction. Because he wants to comfort our doubts and fears. Because he doesn't want us to fear death anymore. Because he wants to give us his grace and mercy to help in time of need. He wants to be able to identify with us. He wants to be ever able to intercede for us. And there is no other reason that Jesus Christ went through that except in obedience to the Father for all of those reasons. And when you understand that, let me ask you a question. Is there anything the Lord Jesus could ask you to do with your life that you'd say, I'm sorry, that price is too high? If any of us would answer that yes, then shame on us. 
D.A. Carson concluded by saying, As his death was unique, so also was his anguish. And our best response to it is hushed worship. I want you to take about 30 seconds. And I want you to bow your head in silent prayer and think about the things that we have discussed this morning. And I want you to really, really let it sink into your soul what Jesus Christ has done for you. Hushed worship. Immediately after that, I will call the men down front for the communion celebration. Take that 30 seconds now, please, in your own heart. Gentlemen.